In your Bibles, please, for our New Testament reading to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Here now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good, if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went, which went before on thee, that thou byest them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Well, let's do a little bit of introductory work before we begin, since we're in a new book. The author of the book, obviously, is the Apostle Paul. The recipients, uh, Paul's true son in the faith, Timothy. Uh, Born of mixed parentage, Timothy was a convert of the Apostle Paul's and was singled out by prophetic utterance for his office and had received his commission from the Apostle and from the Presbytery and he was left in Ephesus as an evangelist in that church to order its affairs. We might remember the office of evangelist that it is an extraordinary office. I know there are men calling themselves evangelists this day. But biblically speaking, in historic Presbyterianism, we recognize men like Timothy, who will be told to do the work of an evangelist. We're not left into doubt as to uh, what officer he was. He was an evangelist. Many people think of the office of evangelism as, uh, or the office of evangelist as being an evangelizer, Right? That you're supposed to go out on the street and proclaim the gospel and draw men to Christ. But we never see Timothy doing that. We never see Titus doing that. Right? We do see Philip the evangelist doing that in Samaria for a time and then retreating to Azotus and remaining there with his four daughters that prophesy. We remember that, right, from Acts 21 and 8. Okay, so what is the office of evangelist then? They were men that were sent all over the ancient world by the apostles on an apostolic errand with extraordinary authority given to them by the apostles to do things in the churches. Normally it was for good order. Okay? So these are the evangelists. If you'd like a really good treatment on the office of evangelist, I would recommend to you in the first, I think it's the first volume, James Bannerman, The Church of Christ. Very, very good, nice, accessible treatment on the offices of the church there. Okay, the date. Again, we have some controversy. There are some that would try to fold this into uh, Acts chapter 19. That Paul uh, left Timothy in Ephesus at that time. Uh, And that's fine. It's an orthodox view, but it's not my view. My view is that all of the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, were written after Paul's release from his first imprisonment. So post-Acts 28. Okay, I know there are some folks that call themselves Acts 29 these days. If you want Acts 29, read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Okay, because that's what happened after Paul was released from his Roman prison, the first imprisonment. Of course, we believe that 2 Timothy was written during the days of Paul's second and final imprisonment. That he is still at liberty here in 1 Timothy and still at liberty in Titus, but not at liberty in 2 Timothy. Okay? So in other words, we have 1 Timothy being written, then Titus being written, and then 2 Timothy being written. Chronologically. Okay, so a lot of folks don't understand that. But I think that that really, um, I, I can't find myself, I, as I have looked, I can't find where that short reference there in Acts chapter 19 uh, really does speak to this 
uh, leaving of Timothy in Ephesus at that point. Okay? All right, so we move on from there then. The, the uh, date then is near the end of Paul's ministry, but not as late as 2 Timothy. So A.D. 64, 65, somewhere around there. The location, again, there are some, some uh, indications in ancient literature, but not in the scripture itself. Um, some would say Macedonia, Philippi. Some would say from Laodicea. We don't really know where Paul was when he wrote this. All, except to say that he left Timothy in Ephesus. And so that has prompted some to say maybe it was Asia Minor, perhaps even Laodicea. But even the references to Laodicea uh, in the ancient literature use a name for, for Laodicea that didn't really come into vogue until the third century. So it may not be accurate, in other words. So we don't want to be dogmatic. Uh, the content... This is really important, and this is what, in my mind, draws, them, draws these three pastoral epistles together temporally. And this is, this is different. There's a different look and feel here than there is, for instance, in the prison epistles, than there is in the Corinthian epistles, and so on. This is the older, mellowed Paul speaking more with regard to conservation rather than establishment. So if you think through those three books with me, I think what we will find is while there are things to be done on the island of Crete, right, with Titus, to establish uh, elders in every city, still what we're looking at here is we're looking at directions for the church that are more long-term being already established. It seems that the missionary endeavors uh, have not, uh, not ceased but they have perhaps taken something of a backseat to the preservation, conservation, and advancement of churches that are already established. And this seems to be, to, to me anyway, to be the look and feel of these last three books here, these pastoral epistles. The content of them also, really, it is a pastoral bent. And so what is said here does not apply to every Christian, although there is some application to us all but not a direct application. Paul is speaking to church officers in Timothy and Titus, and some of the things that he tells them to do would not be proper for the membership of the church to do, although it would be proper for us to learn from them and to know how to apply them to our own callings. All right? So that's your introduction. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, dive in then to the greeting. And the greeting... Oh, how do you remember the book? It's very simple, really. It's a pastoral epistle. And so as a pastoral epistle, it'll have that, that pastoral flair to it. Paul is writing to Timothy here. To uh, you know, Paul himself gives us the, uh, the thesis statement of the book. It's in chapter 3. Do you remember what, this, what the thesis statement is? He will say, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come to thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So that's the purpose statement of the book. We like that, right? As hermeneutical folks, as people who want to understand scripture, whenever one of the authors gives us a purpose statement, we want to highlight that in our introductory work. Okay, so now we move on. We have uh, Paul's greeting here. 
Uh, he introduces himself, who he is. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Okay, so Paul is an apostle by commandment of God. He was put into the ministry, as Paul will say a little bit later in this chapter. He will also say to Timothy, won't he, that there were prophecies which led the way unto thee, right? So that Timothy is also an evangelist by the will of God, by the commandment of God. We say that 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 is true today with regard to the officers of the church. No man takes this honor to himself, but is called of God as was Aaron. And so Christ also uh, did not take this honor to himself, but was installed by an oath. The Lord has sworn and not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not even Christ took the office to himself. Okay? I know there are folks running loose on the landscape without any ordination, gathering disciples to themselves. Uh, they do so improperly. There is a proper way to enter into the ministry of the gospel. Uh, there is a biblical way to do that. Okay, unto Timothy, mine own son in the faith. And so we note not only the affection, but Paul's uh, evangelistic efforts with regard to Timothy himself. And how the Lord was pleased to bless those efforts. And Timothy turned to the Lord. And so now grace, mercy, and peace. Grace is unmerited favor. Mercy is God's kindness and condescension. And peace is the peace with God. Right relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. Peace in scripture is not tranquility. But right relationship with the Lord. So don't ever forget that. Um, it's easy to strive for tranquility in this world. Sometimes our strivings for tranquility will be immoral. Right? Peace for the sake of peace or something like that. There are other times when this peace, uh, this outward settledness rises up out of the peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Because he reconciles God and men. That's the kind of peace we're talking about. All right, so now in verse 3, um, <clears throat> 3 and 4, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrines, neither give heed to fables, endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. All right, so what's going on here? There's supervision over the teaching. No teacher, once he gets his sheepskin, if you will, is uh, a law unto himself. No such thing. Every one of us. This is the genius of God's work in Presbyterianism. No one is an island to himself. Everyone is under some kind of authority. My teaching can be corrected by my brethren. And I pray if I go sideways that you will call them and have them come down here. And as Pastor Rodella said very colloquially in time past, that they will kick my hiney back into alignment. That's what we want. We want the truth coming from our pulpit, even if it's costly to the one who bears it or errs in it. That's what we want. And so Paul tells Timothy, I'm leaving you in Ephesus on this apostolic uh, errand. You talk to those false teachers and you tell them either to correct their teaching or to pipe down. Right? Paul will say it to Titus even more 
directly than that, he will say, whose mouths must be stopped. Remember that the church is not a democracy in that sense. We all don't get to speak whenever we feel like it. There's authorization, and the authorization comes with supervision and responsibility. Right? Uh, Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 10, at the end of those four questions, the fourth rhetorical question, the answer to all four questions is it's impossible. He'll say, how can one preach except he be sent? It's impossible. People don't just send themselves, like we said a moment ago. There is an authority, a structure that protects the people of God from error. That's what it's supposed to do. It's not always rightly administered. We're fond of saying around here that Presbyterianism is God's perfect form of government that either everyone perverts and and twists or doesn't use at all. We want to make sure that to the best of our ability, the Lord giving us strength, that we're making use of that perfect form of government that God has laid down in his word so that everyone comes under some sort of oversight and supervision. No one is an island to themselves that the church can change ministers and not change the church. Why? Because we are confessional in our understanding and teaching. This is the goal of the ministry. The right goal of the ministry is such that other, that another faithful man can come in behind and things not change or improve. Right? Okay. So what were they giving heed to? Fables and endless genealogies. As I said earlier, the word fable will prove large in the pastoral epistles. And beloved, I want to tell you there are a lot of fables out there today. And what is the, the apostolic response to fables? Pipe down. Stop. No fables. We want that pure, unadulterated, unvarnished word of God. We want to speak the truth in love. We don't want to minister these questions um, rather than godly edifying. And we'll remember from our study of Ephesians chapter 4 that that is the goal of the ministry. It is the edification of the body of Christ. Right? God gave the fivefold teaching office, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the gathering and perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Because the people of God, quoting from Psalm 68 there, Paul will say that we are, we come into this this situation as rebels, as uh, liable to, uh, to the craft of men who lie in wait to deceive, as children, and so on. We may not like to hear that, but that's what Paul says there in Ephesians 4. And so the teachers of the church must teach us the pure word of God so that we can learn how to speak the language of Zion ourselves and speak one to another words of edification and truth that the church might be built up. That's the goal of the ministry from Ephesians chapter 4. The way Paul will, will say it to the Colossian church, much more abbreviated, is the goal of the ministry is to present every man perfect in Christ. And by every man, we're including you ladies and children too. Every person. Why did Paul give that command? The end of the commandment is charity, love, agapao, sacrificial love, out of a pure heart and good conscience and faith unfeigned. Interesting, isn't it? That we're going to give a commandment to some to pipe down or to get in line doctrinally, to stop, 
with your fables and to preach the truth instead, godly edifying. And the reason we're going to do that is because we love you and we love the church and we love God. The end of the commandment is charity. Out of a pure heart, faith unfeigned, and a good conscience. Okay? Um, from, and then beyond that, when we swerve away from that, we turn aside into what the scripture call, calls vain jangling or empty, high-sounding speech. Empty, high-sounding speech. Enough of that. We don't need any empty, high-sounding speech. There were two things that the Puritans desired from their pulpits. Number one, that a man would be a very plain preacher. And number two, that he would be a very painful preacher. Right? Plain and painful. That he would speak directly and plain so that everyone might understand. And that he would be painstaking in his labors. Painful in that sense. Not, hey, I, I go listen to that guy because he's mm, painful. Not painful in that way. But painful in the way that he is painstaking, right? He will, he will stay up that extra hour and do that last bit of parsing, that last bit of, of declension work, that last bit of comparing Scripture to Scripture. He'll spend and be spent on behalf of the flock that he might bring the truth and only the truth and nothing but the truth from the pulpit as he preaches God's word to the people. We also remember that the, that the highest and most perfect expression of love is not palpitations. Right? The highest and most perfect expression of love is the law of God. That's why it's called the law of liberty. It's called the law of love. Uh, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Our first and foremost love must always be Christ. And if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. Uh, we, um, we heard earlier today, didn't we, the second commandment? Showing mercy in the thousands of them that, what? Love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so the end of the commandment that Paul gives to Timothy to tell certain teachers either to change or to pipe down, that's based in love because love is most properly expressed in obedience to the commandment of God. Charity out of a pure heart, charity out of a good conscience, and charity or sacrificial love out of faith unfeigned. So the proper teaching of the law should issue in love, not rancor. For love is the fulfilling of the law, as John will tell us in his epistle. We get this terrible thing, don't we? This, we put love and truth at odds with one another. It's really not, that's not the way at all. As a matter of fact, that's 180 degrees out of alignment. Love and truth always go together. Right? So, verse 8. The law is a good, uh, the, the law is good if a man use it lawfully. The law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly and for sinners, unholy and profane, murders of fathers, and so on. Let's, be, before we get to the list, let's talk about the general things that Paul mentions First, the law is a good thing if a man use it lawfully. Well, remember that in our Reformed and Presbyterian churches that we have taught since the days of the Reformation that there are three uses, three godly uses of the law. These are lawful uses. The first is that this is the first step forward in monotheism. 
The first step forward in monotheism is one God, one standard for everybody. Right? And as we've said before, the Greeks and the Romans, they had a pantheon of gods. Why? Because they, because they had a pantheon of morality. Right? One day they would appeal to this God. Another day they appeal to that God. Someday they go behind the gods and appeal to the fates. Right? It was, it was a mixed ethic, a mixed morality, because it was all kinds of mixed deities. Or maybe, shall we say it this way, the mixed morality gave rise to the mixed deities. They created a God after their own desire, or gods after their own desire. Uh, but what Paul will say to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 is that there is one God, only one God. This agnostotheo, this unknown God that you talk about, let me tell you about him. And he's the one who made everything, and he's the one by whom all men live. In him we live and move and have our being, and he's the one to whom all men will give answer. He will judge the world. One God, one moral one system of moral thought. So that's the first use of the law. That there's one God and one morality over all men. We call that the civil use of the law. That all civil laws throughout all countries should be based on the morality of that one God, the creator and sustainer of all. Secondly, we say that the law has a pedagogical use. That it, that it teaches us to go out of ourselves to Christ. It shows us our inability to keep the commandments of God, and so we need a Savior. Paul will, will use that word pedagogue in uh, Galatians chapter 4. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Schoolmaster there, the Greek word pedagogue. It teaches us to leave ourselves and to go out to Christ and forgiveness because the law is an unattainable standard. And then third... That what the Lord does is he takes that law once his people are drawn to him and he returns that law to them as a standard for their living in thankfulness before him. And so those are the three godly uses of the law. Which one of those three is Paul talking about here? I believe he's talking most specifically about the second use of the law, the pedagogical use. The law is good if a man use it lawfully. It's not made for a righteous man. Not in the sense of its pedagogical use, but for the lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane. For those who would have nothing to do with God, they are inexorably and without gainsaying drawn back to the fact that they know and acknowledge the God who is and that they are living before him and beholden to him. Paul in Romans chapter 1 tells us everybody knows this. That they that do such things are worthy of death. Everybody knows this. God as God in his eternal power and Godhead. Paul will say, everybody knows that because God has shown that to everyone. There is an a priori witness in the heart of every man that speaks to his knowledge of God and his knowledge of God's morality. So if we would, by the Spirit of God, be opened up to that well then, we might be able to turn to Christ. The law was certainly the impetus, this second use of the law, this pedagogue, that was the impetus that certainly turned Paul to the Lord. That's what he says in Romans chapter 7. I had not known coveting, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. Then suddenly I realized everything I was doing was covetous. Right? It drove me out of myself, in other words. 
Well, there are those who would talk about lawful and unlawful uses of the law. I'd like to list a few unlawful uses for you um, as a system of merit, right? Obviously, we cannot use the law to gain our standing before God meritoriously. That's an unlawful use. As a mere relic of the past, there are those who would tell us in the Christian church today that the law doesn't belong to the people of God anymore. That's a relic of the past. No, that's an unlawful use of the law. As a means of accusation, charging others with legalism for their attention to the law of God. Well, that's also an unlawful use of the law. Another is an incitement to sin. Interesting, isn't it? That sin, that it might appear so very sinful, took that which was holy, just, and good, the law of God, and made it an occasion of sin for the apostle. When the unregenerate man hears, keep off the grass, his feet are suddenly drawn to the grass. Right? And then finally, as that, um, as something we simply give up on because we can't attain to it. That's an unlawful use of the law. We should bend our efforts uh, toward obedience in everything, even though we may never uh, in this life, certainly we will never in this life do anything perfectly in that sense. All right, so now Paul goes on to the substance of this passage, mentioning several kinds of sins. Remember that the best of things can be perverted to an unjust end, even the law of God. But the list that Paul gives here is relatively short, But it includes, by way of implication, many other things. He will say that the law is made for those who are patricidical, murderers of fathers, matricidical, murderers of mothers, uh, murderers generally, if it wasn't enough to mention father and mother there. He will talk about adultery. He'll talk about homosexuality. He will talk about men-stealers, liars, and those who take false oaths and violate lawful oaths. And Paul will say that the law of God is a corrective and it draws men under conviction. The conviction of the Spirit of God by which they will indeed turn to Christ. And notice he says that these things are contrary to sound doctrine. A couple weeks ago we talked about the, the breadth of the word of God, didn't we? And normally what we're apt to do is we want to separate doctrine from practice. These are doctrines, these are practices, and never the twain shall meet. Yet we learned, didn't we, from 1 Peter 1.22, that you can obey the truth, which means also that you can disobey the truth. In other words, it's a sin to believe the wrong things as well as to practice the wrong And that here we have in 1 Timothy, after all of these behavioral things, Paul will say, if there's anything other that's contrary to sound doctrine. Moral teaching is doctrinal teaching as well. In other words, the Bible doesn't separate that. It keeps them together. So we come to the end of that list then. And he will say, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did, it, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Let's talk about what Paul means there for a moment. Paul doesn't mean you're innocent. You're innocent if you're ignorant. And you know how I know that he doesn't mean that? 
Because he'll go on to say that when he was in that estate, he was the chief of sinners. If innocence and ignorance go together, and Paul says, then I was ignorant, then he would be innocent as well. But as ignorant, he was the chief of sinners. So ignorance does not excuse our wrongdoing against God. What Paul is meaning here is that even though he was a professing Jew, a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as it were, he was ignorant of the true law of God and Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so he pursued, like Jesus said many would do in John 16 too. There there are those who will kill you and they think they'll be doing me service or doing God's service in so doing. Well, that would be an ignorant kind of murder, wouldn't it? would still be chargeable, though. Ignorance does not equal innocence. But what Paul goes on to say in this passage is, I, I think, hopeful for us all. Uh, we might think of the, the sins that Paul had committed as a Pharisee. What were they? Well, he lists some of them here. Blasphemer, persecutor, injurious. He certainly approved of Stephen's murder, standing there holding the garments of those who stoned Stephen. And so he was murderous in that sense. Have any of you uh, committed murder? Have you blasphemed? Have you been involved in any of these other things that Paul has listed here? Remember that the law is made for you. It's made for you. And so notice what Paul says here. Paul says... The Lord's grace came to me first as the chief of sinners so that by the Lord drawing me to himself and forgiving me of my sins, he might show to the rest of the world in saving the chief of sinners that he can save any sinner. What an amazing thing to say. Doesn't this warm your heart as a Christian? You might think, well, I'm not a a murderer, but maybe I'm a blasphemer. Maybe I've broken my oaths, which is blasphemy. Maybe I have done this thing or that thing, and and I may not be what I would class the chief of sinners, but I'm certainly deep in my sins. And Paul will say to you here in 1 Timothy 1, here's why God sent me, at least one of the reasons, so that he could make use of me as the chief of sinners, showing that his mercy knows no bounds. It can stretch even as far as you. As far as you. And so, beloved, while there is breath, there is hope. Call upon the name of the Lord. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make use of the law in that second use as a, as a, as a pedagogue. And come confessing your sins. And Jesus says, when you come to him, he will not cast you out. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorant and unbelief. And the grace of the Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy. That in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. What can you do besides what Paul does now? And that is break forth into a doxology. Remember the difference between benediction and doxology? Benediction goes this way. 
Doxology goes this way. Now, unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and power and glory forever. Amen. That's verse 17. What a wise and merciful God who slays with the law that he may show mercy to manifest his own glory. Finally then, there is a charge that is committed to Timothy. So not only was he put into the ministry by the command of Christ, but he is charged by the apostle in this work of evangelist that he would go forth and do what he has been commanded to do, holding faith and a good conscience. And we end with Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have been delivered unto Satan. That is, they've been excommunicated. They've been put out of the church. They are no longer under that visible dominion of Christ. They are under the dominion of Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Notice what Paul has just said. So let's not think of this such a harsh thing, but as the means, perhaps, in God's good time, of salvation for both Hymenaeus and Alexander. Thus ends the reading of 1 Timothy chapter 1.